0: Uh, today, we're picking up the series we've been doing, King Me series, which is living our destiny. One day, you and I that believe in Jesus will rule and reign with Him, so we should start acting like it now. All right? So, our text, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, again, we give thanks to have been chosen by you to be included. In your kingdom, to be your kids, joint heirs with you of this coming kingdom. So, would you this morning, Lord, speak? May we listen, may we be sharpened, may we be enabled to better reflect you, to be better image bearers, ambassadors of this kingdom. So, help us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here's what we've been doing we've been going through this vocabulary list. Faith, we've done it. Virtue, we did it. Knowledge, we did it. Self-control was last week. And now our word is steadfastness. And what I'll do sometimes just to kind of find out like, what's the view of a word? I'll just Google it. Because it kind of gives you, you get these top like things that show up. So I Googled steadfast. One of the top things that showed up was guess what? Men's hair gel. <laughs> you may be a wimp and you may waver, but your hair will not. So I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> maybe I need to talk about this word just for a second, because that's not what it's talking about. It's not about hair gel, as important as hair gel is. That's not what this is about. So the word here, steadfast, when you see it in the Bible, it's, it's one of two words, the first one is this Greek word called makrothumeia. Macro means big, right? Thumeia, it's, it's it means anger, actually. It doesn't mean you have a big temper. It actually means it takes a lot to get you to be angry. So it's makrothumeia. That's often translated steadfast. It takes a lot to get you, all right? That's not the word here, though. This word is a different word translated steadfast, and it's the word hupomone. Now, hupo is where we get our word hyper, hyper. Mone means to stay. So it's actually one of these things that it works out well to look at the roots. It literally means to hyper stand. That's this word, steadfast or hyper stand. You don't get knocked off your game. You hyper stand. And as I thought about that word and in the Bible, There are so many examples of men and women who are superstanders. You've got Ruth. You've got Esther. You've got Jeremiah. You've got this group called the Rechabites. You've got this guy, his name is Shammah. He's one of David's mighty men. And there was this battle coming, this army was coming and He was told, guard this acre of lentils. And so guess what he did? He superstood on an acre of lentils, and fought off an army protecting an acre of lentils. Like, it didn't amount to a hill of beans. And yet he, <laughs> so bad, he stayed put. Now, what, why? Maybe it was lentil stew or something. He had this hope, I'll get lentil stew. Imagine what he would do for uh, prime rib. And within the word hupomone, there's always the motivation of it. It's not negative, it's always the hope. The reason why I can stand, superstand, is there's some kind of hope out there. But I think an all star, an all star superstander is this guy. He's well known. His name is Caleb. So he's going to be our example. He's going to show us what it means to be steadfast. So flip in your Bible to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Numbers is the fourth book in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers, Numbers 13. Let me give you a bit of background. Here's what's happened. He, Caleb, has been selected as one of 12 people, one from each of the tribes of Israel. So he was selected. Out of the thousands of people in his tribe, Caleb is selected to be one of the men that go into the promised land walk around it after they'd been in the desert for two years, spying it out, checking it out, trying to say, what kind of land is this? Now, this was a land that had been promised to their great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. And so this people group, the Israelites, had had this collective hope and anticipation that one day we'll get that promise, 400 years years. And the battle there was tough. They went through a genocidal maniac, the Pharaoh, who killed their babies, who enslaved them, who beat them. It was a tough trajectory to get to the point where they were now at the banks of the Jordan River, ready to go in and receive this reward. 400 years. Can you imagine that? Like, we don't have anything equivalent to that. Our country has been a nation for just over 200 years. 400 years, they had this hope and anticipation, we'll finally get a land. We'll get away from the pharaohs that kill our babies. We'll get away from these things that are horrible and evil. Finally, we'll get our land. We don't have anything like that. Like the greatest anticipation we have as a country is like the next Star Wars movie. Oh man, seven days, I can't wait, yeah, right? Right? Like I get Twitter and I cannot believe how many people talk about Star Wars. That's our greatest anticipation. So we have nothing even, there's nothing to compare to how excited this group of people would be to finally receive the promise, all right? So that's where we're at, Numbers 13. Picking it up in verse 17, and I'll give you what you see, Caleb shows us steadfastness, number one, in that he would stand out. He'll stand out. A steadfast person, a steadfast woman, a steadfast man is not afraid to stand out. Verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is a good or bad land, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good cheer and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was a season of the first ripe grapes. So here it is. Moses now talks to these 12 men who have been selected from their tribes out of the thousands, the millions. Now these 12, you guys are it. Get in there, check it out. Remember it's promised to us. Tell us what the land is like, go. So they do. Now let's pick up the story in verse 25. At the end of the 40 days, They returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. After two years of being in the desert, they cross over the Jordan, they go into the Negev, and they're like, wow, paradise, lush. It's like after you spend a whole day over in Dredford coming back to Grant's Pass. <laughs> oh, paradise, lush. I'm so glad to be home. All right, so it's a good land. Verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. dun dun, dun, dun these are the realists, right? The negativists. (laughs) They see the obstacle in every opportunity. This is the person that uh, when you're enjoying the sun, you're like, man, the sun is so nice. What do they say to you? You're going to get cancer, global warming. You better get used to it. It's just going to get hotter. right, man, the economy is doing so good. I'm so happy. My lazy brother-in-law finally got a job. It's a miracle. Oh yeah. Well, it's coming to an end. The Chinese are buying all of our bonds, they will own us, and the only job you'll get is working in a sweatshop, making suits for gymnasts, all right? That's coming. It's the realist, right? Everyone knows somebody like this. They find the problem in every single solution. I call them the flat tire tribe. Right? They'll never, ever get moving until they're changed. So that's this tribe. Nope. Obstacles. Never gonna work, forget about it. Giants in the land, fortified cities, too many people, no. But then, verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And he said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Notice the first guy that speaks up. We often think it's Joshua and Caleb. It's not. The first guy that stands up against the majority and says, no way, is Caleb. And he says, uh-uh, we are well able to overcome it. But then immediately, verse 31, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against it. For the people there are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height, giants. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. How interesting. And so we seem to them. Then all the congregation raised up a loud cry and the people wept that night. Ten people convinced two million people to not believe the promises of God. And they end up going on a 38 year death march. Is it important who you listen to? Oh my goodness. It is so important. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, verse 2. And Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's fire Moses. (laughs) Let's get rid of him and let's get our own leader and let's go back. Caleb, number one, steadfastly stands out. The majority is saying, no, you can't do it. And Caleb is the first lone voice that says, uh-uh. Number one, steadfastness is willing to stand out. And the reason he stood out is because he knew what was right. You guys are wrong. God promised us this land. We are able to overcome it. It doesn't matter that there's giants. It doesn't matter that there's fort. It doesn't matter how many people are there. It does not matter. God promised us the land. We can take it. He doesn't do, do a pro and con list. He just says, this is right, and you guys are wrong. Steadfastness stands out, number one. Because very often, the majority is wrong. Do you know that? It is. It's called the bandwagon effect. Those of us who live in the state of Oregon should know all about the bandwagon effect. If you don't know about the bandwagon effect, go to Goodwill, go to the sports section where they sell clothing, and you'll see the bandwagon effect. Things have changed there. (laughs) It's also called groupthink. Groupthink is where people are unwilling to voice anything against what everyone else is saying, and it's very dangerous. You can just wiki groupthink, and here's the examples they give. Number one, and we just celebrated the 60th year uh, anniversary of Pearl Harbor, 65th year. 75. What is it? 75. <laughs> 75? Okay, sorry. We just celebrated the seven 70- my math is off. We just celebrated the seventy-fifth anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Here's what's fascinating. December 6th, 1941. No one in the US military believed anyone would ever att- what is it? Seven five. No, December 6th, the day before, hold on, hold on. I'm right here. (laughs) On December 6th, the day before Pearl Harbor, no one believed that we'd be attacked by Japan. And we had all this evidence, like they were moving their ships and there's all this, nah, we got some radio transmissions that were like, hmm, like they were literally saying, we're going to attack. Nah, they never will. But guess what happened December 7th, 1941 we are attacked. But groupthink, they say that was one of the most damaging examples in our history of groupthink. They have another example, the election of 2016. Yeah, where it was groupthink, where the entire media said, no way will Trump win. It's going to be Hillary Clinton. So the New York Times on Monday before the election said this, Hillary Clinton has an 84% chance of winning this election. And I just read this great article yesterday on it. Because Hillary Clinton had, you know, she's got thousands of people around her and they were all saying the same thing. You've got it, you've got it, you're gonna win this. Look at all the media, every poll is showing you're going to win this. There was one dissenter. There was one Caleb, Andrew Johnson. And he kept saying, huh-uh. And he was saying to the campaign, we need to get to the Rust Belt. It's in trouble. You need to start making some visits there. But the campaign decided, no, we don't wanna do that. And you know why they didn't wanna do that? because it will make it look like we're worried. And we can't make it look like we're worried. So instead of going there, instead of going to Wisconsin, which was the one he was saying, go to Wisconsin. She went to Tempe, Arizona. Groupthink. Sometimes, a lot of times, the majority is wrong. Caleb here stands out because he absolutely knows this is wrong. You guys don't get it. This land was promised to us. We can go in there and we can take it. But I'll tell you, there's one example that's my favorite of standing out. It's this guy, his name is August Landmesser. Anyone hear of him? He's brilliant. So he's raised in Germany during the Hitler Nazi regime, but there's this incredible picture of him. Check this out. Do you see him right there? Do you see what he's doing? Okay, do a close-up. Everyone else is doing this. August Landmaster, the only one in this video, just standing there. Uh Uh-uh, I ain't doing that. Turns out the backstory on him, he's dating a Jewish woman. He's like, Hitler, she's hot. I don't care, man. (laughs) It's always the woman, isn't it? (laughs) Nope, nope. I'm not doing that. Because of this, he was arrested and thrown into a concentration camp. Sometimes standing out will get you in trouble. But he knew this, what you're doing is wrong. I will not salute that. That's a Caleb mentality. I will stand out. This is true, period. And you're not going to get me to move from this position. We need a whole bunch more people willing to stand out like Caleb, We need high schoolers that say, I don't care what everybody else is doing. That's wrong. I will stand out. I don't care if everyone cusses. I don't care if everyone drinks. I don't care if everybody smokes pot. I don't care. It's wrong. And I'll stand out against that. I don't care if you're trying to push that or treat that person that way. That is wrong. And I won't treat them that way. We need a whole bunch of people to do that. In the workplaces, at home, steadfast Caleb, uh uh-uh. This is right, and that's wrong, and I will stand for what is right. That's number one. Caleb would stand out. Number two, he steps up. Look at chapter 14, picking it up in verse five. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And now Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out their land out the land tore their clothes and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land if Yahweh delights in us he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land that flows with milk and honey only do not rebel against Yahweh and do not fear the people of the land they are bread for us. Phenomenal. Their protection is removed from them. And Yahweh is with us. Do not fear Then, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. I love We don't agree with you, so we're going to kill you. But the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Number two, he steps up. And this is what he says. That obstacle that you guys see, these giants and these fortified cities and the number of people, it's bread for us. It's just gonna gain, it's just gonna help us. I don't see it as an obstacle, I see it as an opportunity. What you guys see as this unachievable goal, I see as wow, gains bread. I don't think there's any better perspective for the people of Jesus to have than that. So I'm reading a book right now. It's called Messy. It's a really fascinating book. And the premise is that right there, that it is the obstacles and the messes and the hard thing, that that if you have the right perspective on them, can produce just greatness. So they give this example. The, The book actually begins with it. And it's this famous study. It's called the Cologne Concert. Has anyone heard of that? good. I got to tell you about it. So it's back in 1975. This 17-year-old girl puts on this massive concert, and she is able to invite over to play the piano uh, Keith Jarrett, who at that time was considered like the best piano player in the world. He was way up there, just a stallion of of a piano player. So it just sells out. Everybody's buying tickets, massive plays. Everything's awesome. Well, Keith Jarrett said, in order for me to play, I require a certain kind of piano. It was a, um, let me read here what it is. It's a Bossendorfer 290 Imperial, a very nice piano. Well, somehow that didn't get transferred over. And instead of getting a Bossendorfer 290 Imperial, they got a Walmarter for 290 bucks, <laughs> right? So the day of the concert comes, he comes in, in the morning, he sees the piano, he's like, uh-uh, I'm not playing that thing. He actually went over and went, oh my goodness, never. I will not play that. I'm not playing that in here. And they try to get another one. They can't because when you move a piano, what happens is it goes out of tune and there's no way to tune it in. It's impossible. So Keith Jarrett says, no, I'm out. Well, probably the only reason why he played that piano is because it was a 17 year old girl saying, please, please, please. And so finally he's like, okay, fine. Well, because of That obstacle, that cheesy piano, he had to do something and he had to improvise. He had to play way outside of his comfort zone. The article says, or the book says, he had to play more in the middle and he had to play super hard in order to get the sound out of it that he wanted. Well, as you can imagine, it was one of the most successful concerts ever. People got up and applauded. It was recorded that night. That recording, a couple hours work, for Keith Jarrett, went on to become the best-selling jazz solo piano album ever. 3.5 million copies. In fact, I've listened to it. It's brilliant. Now, why? Because of this obstacle that put him out of his comfort zone, and he plays differently. The mess is what created the miracle. That's what Caleb understands right here. Guys, what you think is a mess, man, is God's opportunity to give us a miracle, that's what it is. It's gains for us, and we see the source of it. The source is this, it's verse nine. The Lord is with us. Who shall we be afraid of? Do you know that's the most repeated command in the Bible? Don't be afraid. And almost always followed by, because God is with us. Don't you know, who cares if there's giants Who cares about the numbers? Who cares about the majority? God is with us. These obstacles, these giants, these problems, they're just bread for us. That's a theme in the Bible. Paul would say in Romans chapter five, verse three, he says, man, I count it joy to suffer because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope so that we're never ashamed. James would put it like this. James 1, 2, and 3. My brothers, count it all joy when you have troubling times, because it's those troubling times that produce patience in you and let patience have her perfect work that you might be complete, entire, lacking nothing. It builds you. Jesus puts it like this in John chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. Difficulty, it's like childbirth. Is childbirth difficult, moms? Can I get an amen? (laughs) Difficult. But what does childbirth eventually produce? Teenagers. No, I mean babies. (laughs) And that's beautiful and joyful. Man, that's the way it works. We need to take this command seriously. If you really believed God was for you, what would you do? If you really believe that God is for me, what would you do? See, steadfastness steps up and says, God's with me. Okay, great, Matt. You can say that, but here's the thing I have stepped up, I've tried things and I've failed. I felt God was leading me to start a business and it went bankrupt. I felt God was leading me on the mission field and I tried and it was a failure. In fact, I lost my marriage through it. I felt like God wanted me to start training or go to school and I flunked out, kicked out. Now, you can say this, but you know what? I've tried it and every time I step up, I slip. So, what about that? Here's what I'm convinced as a believer there's no such thing as failing. Here's why. Romans 8, 28. For we know all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Even failure. We know all things. Would that include failure? Oh, absolutely. That all those things work for my good. I say this, failure for a believer is fertilizer for future fruit. That God is actually doing something in that, in me, and he promises me, Romans 8.28, that this will work for good. Romans 8.28 is the incubator that has created great believers throughout history that have tried just unimaginable things. And we just always hear the successes, but we don't hear the failures that actually produced in them the metal to succeed. Billy Graham, read his biography, how he failed early on what his own wife thought of him before he mar- married her. We see the product. We don't understand all the failure that went into it. It's, it's the incubator failure is. And we know this. Hey, Romans eight twenty eight. even if I fail, God, you're gonna use that for some good, maybe in this life or maybe in the eons to come as I rule and reign with you. My favorite, favorite example of this is this pottery class example. Or a teacher, a professor did this in in his pottery class. He did class and divided them into two. Half the class, he said this, your entire grade is going to be based on one piece of pottery, your masterpiece. So you have one piece of pottery pottery to make this entire term. The other half of the class, he said, it's not quality that you're going to be based on, it's quantity. Give me 50 pounds of pottery. I don't care what it looks like you'll get an A. 40 pounds, you'll get a B. It's just quantity. At the end of the term, every single masterpiece of pottery, guess which crew it came from? The quantity. Because they were given the freedom to fail. The, the, the quality crew was like, oh no, I gotta make this perfect, oh, uh. There There's so much stress of that. Not the ability to try things, improvise, play the piano differently. They weren't given that freedom. And because they weren't given that freedom, and they were so stressed out, they failed. Romans 8, 28 gives you and me the freedom to be like, why not? If God is for me, who can be against me? I don't have to fear. I can be steadfast. I can go for it. The greats of the Bible see this. Moses in Deuteronomy 23, verse five says this. He will turn the cursing into blessing. I trust even the curses of this life that he's able to turn them into blessing. David in Psalm chapter. 30, verse 11 says this, "Those that mourn, he will turn that into dancing and turn our sackcloth into gladness." Of course, you know Isaiah 61:3, He'll give us beauty for ashes. And that entire text is this whole idea. Trust him. Jesus in Luke chapter 6, puts it this way, "Blessed are those that weep, for soon they shall laugh." That's one of my favorites. Blessed are those that weep. Why? Because those tears. Are planting the seeds for your future joy and we're kind of at a time where I always think this way like new year 2017 where would God want me to step up maybe where has God called me or been wooing me maybe for two years as I wandered and maybe 2017 I need to step up somewhere and not fear all those things if God's with me I don't need to be afraid So steadfastness, number two, steps up. Well, Matt, that's great, but I'm old. I'm way too old to step up. Okay, one more story about Caleb, Joshua 14. He, number three, stays the course. Steadfastness stays the course. It stands out, it steps up, and it stays the course. Joshua chapter 14. So here's what's happened. The book of Joshua, they go in the land finally after 40 years of wandering. Joshua, Caleb, the only two original folks that came out of Egypt, they're the ones that make it in. The land pretty much has been taken, but there's still some pockets of resistance. And so Caleb, this survivor, is told, listen, bro, you got choice. What land do you want? any land. You're 85. Choose any land that you want. What would you choose at 85? Beachfront? Malibu? Listen to what he does. Verse 10, Joshua 14. And now behold, Yahweh has kept me alive. This is Caleb speaking. Just as he said, these 45 years since the time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day, 85 years old. Is anyone here 85 or older? Okay, we got one, no excuses. 85 years old, listen to what he chooses. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is that as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which Yahweh spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that Yahweh will be with me and I shall drive them out just as Yahweh said. Did he choose beachfront? No, what did he want? Give me the mountain with the giant and the forts on it. Why? Because for 45 years, here's what Caleb had found. It's bread for me. I'm as strong as I was when I was 45. Why? Because I keep choosing the mountain with the giant on it. And it's kept me in shape. I love that. Caleb runs through the tape. I'm not giving up. Why would I change? This is how it's been now my whole life. I'm not changing now. I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. Period. I'm going to stand out, step up, and I'm going to stay the course. Now, if I ended right there, you could accuse me of self-help with a side order of God. And you might be right. But while Caleb is an all-star of hyperstanding, there's another one who is the all-star of hyperstanding. See, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says this. It's actually a command for us. And it says this: looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Anybody know? Endured. That word endured, guess what it is? Hupo Superstood, hyperstood the cross. And now He is set down at the right hand of God. It's a command. Do you want to superstand? Well, you can try to gut it up and stand out and maybe you'll do it sometimes. And you can try to like, you know, not fail or fail or trust your failures or whatever. But the truth is, the command for the believer is looking unto Jesus. That's our motivation. So how does that work? Well, here's how. When I don't look to Jesus, here's what happens to me: I get full of fear. I don't want to stand out. I just want to be with my friends. If my friends are doing all that, well, then I'm going to do that too because I don't really want to be weird and awkward and different. So I'm just going to do what they're doing, and I'll just be okay. I'll just do. Well, you guys are doing okay. I guess I'll do that too, right? If I see failure looming on the horizon, I'm not going to choose failure. No way. It's only when I start looking at Jesus that things start to change. So I have to ask questions like this. Like, how did I get where I'm at? Looking to Jesus requires me to ask that. Did I get where I'm at because of my incredible good looks? Did I get where I'm at because of my guns? And they're big. (laughs) Did I get where I'm at solely based on my discipline or my intellect? Or did I get where I'm at because of the grace of Jesus Christ? Oh, no, I got where I'm at because his grace. And maybe his grace is calling me to fail here because he has something even better for me. And when I look at the cross, I'm able to say, okay, then. Hupomone. I'll stand through the cross. I'll stand through this just like you did because there's better things coming. When, when we're like Peter and we get our eyes off Jesus and put them on a person— and allow that person to dictate our value. And so we start wanting them to approve of us or wanting to fit in or whatever it is. Look out, you sink. When we start looking at money or we start looking at success or any of those other things, you sink. It's only when we get back and we start staring at the cross of Jesus Christ that we are able to super stand. That for the joy set before him, that there is a goal to this, that God has good plans, that after the brutal cross on Friday for the believer always comes Resurrection Sunday. That all things work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And we see that because of Jesus. It's how the disciples hyperstood When they were drawn and quartered, when holes were bored into their head and when they were alive, molten lead was poured in. When they were staked and kindling stacked around them and it was set on fire and they could stop it all with one word, deny. Just by saying Caesar is Lord, they're set free, but they didn't. They superstood. Why? Because they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus. That even this, you'll turn it into joy. And Jesus did. He's turned them into gold. He's turned them into kings and queens that rule with him forever. That's how we hyperstand. We look at Jesus. And there's no better way to do that than the table set before us. We hyperstand, why? Because we're looking to Jesus. And we trust. if, If you could take the worst Friday in history and turn it into the greatest Sunday, you can do that for me too. And so maybe you're here today and you're feeling like I'm not steadfast. I don't stand out. I won't step up. I'm not staying the course look to Jesus, take communion and say, take my mess, take these obstacles, take these things that I've just been looming in my head and and causing me to be fearful, would you take them? And would you turn them into something incredible? And so Jesus, you're our hero, our archegos. You are the author and finisher of our faith. And I ask forgiveness in my own life where I've looked at my circumstances, where I've looked at the storm, where I've looked at the waves and I've sunk, where I've wanted the approval of men, where I've wanted power or money, and I've stopped trusting in you, where I fear if I cling to you, you might let me down. Oh, forgive me of that. May the cross once again carry each of us through our difficulties. May we look to Jesus as the example, knowing there's joy set before us and we can hyperstand through anything because of that joy. Strengthen and empower us, I pray this day. May we be a company of hyperstanders because we're looking at Jesus as our hero. And I pray this in your name. Amen.